part two of Pain and Suffering miniseries. God makes many wonderful, true, and superlative promises of victory, peace, joy, love, and salvation. So why do we suffer, especially when we're doing the right thing? In today's program, we'll continue and conclude with our mini-series on pain and suffering. The mini-series on pain and suffering is to give you a quick perspective, a broadened idea of why God, who is more than able to do anything, allows pain and suffering. It's not because he's masochistic. It's not because he doesn't care. It's because he's prepared better things for those that believe and trust in him. Let's focus on King David. He had a noble goal. He was an anointed man, a king, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the beloved of the Lord, an athlete, a sportsman, a great warrior. Yet he experienced much more trial and heartache than most godly people will ever experience. He faced lions, bears, Goliath, Philistines, Ammonites, Edomites, Arameans, a rebellious son called Absalom, a rebellious countryman called Sheba, the son of Bichri, He survived all these things. And the miracle of David is he lived to an old age and died peacefully in his bed. How did he do it? He understood an invaluable lesson that in the distress, there is enlargement. Distress is the growing pains. And David actually says this in the first verse of the fourth Psalm. You enlarged me when I was in distress. Before honor comes humility. Other verses on distress preceding enlargement is Psalms 18, verses 18 and 19, and Psalm 118 and verse 5. Suffering. The nature of suffering is often spiritual. Because if your suffering is not self-inflicted, and even if it is, learn the lesson Come running back to God in repentance and faith. But oftentimes, the source of suffering is not natural at all, but spiritual. Your enemies are not the people over the fence, the antagonist colleague at work, your ideological opponent in the culture war. Your real enemy is the one you cannot see, nor can anyone else but God. First of all, the enemy has a name. Satan. He is the adversary of all the people of God. He has dutiful minions called demons. Ephesians 6 verse 12 outlines this principle also well. For it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Yes, People may be giving you a hard time, but it is vital that you see the spiritual nature of your suffering and opposition. It should make you lose your resentment and potential unforgiveness towards the human actors in the trial. Bear in mind that a problem person is a problem person because they are loaded with problems themselves. They would be less problematic to you and others if they had less problems full stop. 
your unforgiveness therefore makes their problem your problem. Forgiveness keeps you, like Teflon, from inheriting the problems and pains of others. So suffering is spiritual. But also we learn something else. Suffering in context. When you suffer, it is tempting to think you're the only one and nobody understands and I am all alone and that our circumstances are worse than everyone. Not so. Suffering and strength go hand in hand. Since God will not allow you to suffer or to be tempted beyond what you can endure. That's what it tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. He provides a way of escape that you can cope with the trial. Those who have suffered greatly, and it's not due to personal sin, are actually very strong people who are simply being stretched by the Almighty. This author experienced some bizarre spiritual-induced trials. I was called from an overseas minister friend to request prayer. What he shared with me was transformational. When I called the overseas friend to request prayer, this is a person of faith, great faith, and goes around the world building people up in faith. And yet what happened is I'm about to upload my problem to them for prayer, and they start to unload to me about their own personal trials. And let me tell you, What they were going through was far more harrowing than what I was experiencing. Instead of receiving prayer, I ended up giving the prayer for my ministry friend. The good news is that everyone's prayers were met, mine and his. We carried one another's burdens and thus fulfilled the law of Christ. In suffering, always look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith consider what he suffered. On our behalf, much rejection from family, Nazareth neighbors, his disciples, John 6, 63 and verse 66, the religious establishment, the Roman ruling elite, Jesus suffered misunderstanding, grotesque injustice, mob justice more likely, mocking, murderous hatred, long spikes, and a pointed spear. Just listen to the catalog of verbal abuse the Savior received. He was called a glutton, a drunkard, a deceiver, someone that has a demon, born in fornication, works with the prince of the devils, friend of publicans and sinners. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the sinless Son of God. But you wouldn't know it by the vicious and slanderous rhetoric hurled at him. Hebrews 12 verse 2, tells us that it was the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. He dragged it through the streets of Jerusalem until Simon of Cyrene carried it on his behalf. The nails were pounded in his hands, the spear in his side. The pain was unspeakable and excruciating, and he was nearly naked or perhaps completely naked on the cross. What humiliation. There were taunts from the enemies while he was suffering his indescribable pulsating pain. Forsaken by his disciples, though John the Beloved was there, while the faithful woman mourned for him from afar. After six hours of crucifixion, 
he died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. Hebrews 12 verse 3 tells us, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Child of God. One of the great truths of Scripture is that when we come to God through the gospel of Christ, we become God's children. This means we are his heirs, thus making us joint heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8, 17. Sounds wonderful and glorious? They are, but it also means that like Christ, we also suffer with him. My pastor, who was no stranger to God's presence and anointing, once said that if you seek God's glory, you are praying in the troubles. Very unusual statement for somebody who is so upbeat most of the time. You want the glory, you're praying in the troubles. The suffering is the down payment to glory, like the labor pains precede the childbirth and the tribulation precedes the millennium. One of the marks of sonship, male and female children of God, is that of discipline. Our suffering can often be called the chastening of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 speak of this explicitly. Don't despise God's chastening or be weary when he corrects you. It is a sign of God's love towards the child in whom he delights. A parallel passage is found in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, which says God's chastening means God's love. He scourges every child whom he receives. The redemption purpose, or shall we say, the redemptive purpose of divine chastening is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32, that God is disciplining us so that we are not condemned along with the world. Without the sting of divine discipline, a person faces an eternity of regret. And, as always, we are in good company with no one less than the Savior himself. When the triune God made the first public appearance ever, it was at the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River, courtesy of John the Baptist himself. God the Son was in the water of the Jordan River. God the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove and landed on him. God the Father was the voice which spoke from heaven. What did God the Father say about God the Son? In Matthew 3.17, this is what he said. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In the parallel passage found in the Gospel of Mark, note what happened right after this public commendation. Mark 1 verse 12 says, And immediately, this is after the Father spoke his affection, his approbation, his commendation of Jesus, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. The Son of God, who well pleased and delighted the Father, publicly crowned by the Holy Spirit, was now led, even compelled by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness where he would be tempted of the devil. It would be a tough 40 days, especially since the Lord was fasting. At no point did he chafe, complain, or criticize his plight. Instead, he exercised empowered 
earth-inheriting meekness that led him into even greater power and authority as he commenced his earthly ministry. If God did that to his beloved son, don't be surprised that he does it to you too. It is not a mark of rejection, contempt, or indifference. On the contrary, it is a sign that we belong to him. Let's hear the timeless counsel from the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans 8 speaks about the Spirit-filled lifestyle. Verses 14 to 17. Let me read it to you. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Seek the glory, praying in the troubles. As the above passage says, our sonship is manifested by being led by the Holy Spirit, whether it's to the top of the mountain or into the arid wilderness. And the Holy Spirit bears witness that we are God's children. The spirit of adoption allows us to call God Father, and the term is Abba. It comes from the Hebrew or the Aramaic, which can mean Dad or even Daddy. As children and join heirs of Christ, we suffer like He did so we can receive glory together with Him. So that leads us to an important question. How should we respond to suffering and pain? That happens to everybody in the world, but to different degrees and for different reasons. The Apostle Paul had very mega suffering. And Jesus even told Ananias of Damascus that I will show this man, Saul of Tarsus, the great things he must suffer for my name's sake. The suffering was for enlargement. The suffering was meekness so that Paul would have power to turn the world upside down. The suffering was for pruning his uh, hard edge, and possibly, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, the suffering was also self-inflicted because he was an agent of much suffering himself to the early church, and now Saul of Tarsus was reaping what he sowed and getting a taste of his own medicine. I'm not saying this was actually the case, but it possibly could be. We need to be open. So how do we respond in a practical way to the problem of pain and suffering? Well, the first thing is when you're suffering and in pain, come to God and do so boldly. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can't even count how many times I've quoted this verse when coming to God. And then Psalm 37, verse 5, commit your trial and your own person, yourself, to God. When you're in God's territory, things will happen, and for the better. We also learn from 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, repent of sin and or learn the lessons of the righteous. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's if sin is the catalyst or the cause of the suffering. And then number four, don't hesitate to seek spiritual support, but also try to stand on your own feet. Galatians 6.2 and Romans 15.1 and 2. Looking for the grace mileposts along the way. This is an important point. Chances are, if you get hit with a trial, you will see a grace milepost at the very beginning of that trial. Isaiah 30.21 and throughout. Thank God when you see a milepost. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says to thank God in everything. What I mean by grace milepost is when the trial hits, a hopeful sign, an encouraging word, a vision in the day, a dream by night, a fortuitous coincidence, something to let you know that God is aware, He cares, He has it under control. Then, number six, get the facts and know where you stand. For when you know the truth, the truth shall set you free, John 8, 31 and 32. You can't go very forward until you know the circumstances, whatever it may be. Get your facts, know where you stand, pray without ceasing. That's number seven, First Thessalonians 5.17. In other words, always be in prayer mode. Number eight, practice joyous, fulsome, and regular praise and worship, which is the language of faith. And I cannot stress this point enough. Sometimes all it takes is praising God with a whole heart to blow the clouds of trial and tribulation away and allow the sun to shine. It may be the one thing to get the devil off your back, resisting him, and he shall flee. Trust and keep trusting no matter what. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. In addition to these practical points, and for the sake of simplicity, If you can't remember anything else I have shared, please remember this. One of Christendom's greatest hymns is simply entitled, Trust and Obey. Do these things, trust and obey, and you will successfully sail from the troubled seas to your appointed, desired haven or port. Just like a child in the lap of a loving parent or grandparent, You will leave your cares behind when you trust God and make it a lifestyle. Besides, if you cannot trust God now, fully and completely, when do you plan to start? Tomorrow could be too late. Remember that phrase, trust and obey. Obedience is all important. But what are we supposed to obey? For example, Deuteronomy 28 commands Israel to diligently obey the commands of the Lord. Superlative rewards are bestowed on the obedient, verses 1 to 14. However, disobedience will result in an avalanche of horrendous curses, verses 15 to 68 of Deuteronomy 28. By the time you're done reading this list of curses, 54 verses in all, it turns disobedience into an act of lunacy. While the New Testament is full of grace and truth, and for that matter so is the Old Testament, the standards are no less stringent. Matthew seven twenty one to 23 the Lord Jesus Christ warns that only those who do the will of the Heavenly Father will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Merely giving lip service to Christ and His Lordship is not enough. Obedience is the minimum standard. Again, 
Strive for simplicity as we illustrate a divine command. We are already learned the injunction from Jesus regarding the last day's living, found in Luke 21.36. The Lord tells us two basic things, watch and pray. He commands the same thing of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray. To watch is to be aware situationally, personally, locally, internationally, and spiritually. We are watchmen on the walls, numbered among the prudent, exercising leadership because we see further down the road and we show the way forward. To pray should be self-explanatory. What are the rewards for obedience to the command to watch and pray? Well, we won't enter into temptation, we will have strength in trial, we will escape the end-time calamities, and we will stand before the Son of Man. Luke 21:36. The evidence there is for all to see. Now more than ever, it is time to trust God with all of your heart, all of the time, and especially during testing. He will make a way for you, even where there seems to be no way. Now that we've been thoroughly introduced to the theme and purpose the nature of God, and the secret place. It is time to read the fine print and learn to trust and obey so we may inherit God's inheritance. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've shown us the way forward in times of suffering, pain, and the like. Help us to see you. Help us to draw closer to you. Help us to be duly pruned so we can bear more fruit. Help us to be enlarged. Help us to do all for your glory, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.